Well, my name is Joshua, and I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Press. And as we've already mentioned, today is Palm Sunday. This is the beginning of Holy Week, even though this week is not any holier than any other week. Uh, as Kyle's mentioned, this is the week that we re- reflect on Christ uh, last week, his life, his teachings, his death, his resurrection. Um, but all around the world, Christians are celebrating Palm Sunday today in different ways. And I know for me, um, many years, I showed up on Palm Sunday, I got my palm branch, and I waved it in the air, and I said, Hosanna, and I went home, and that was it. And if you had asked me, well, why the palm branch? I would have said, well, that's what they did in the Bible. If you'd asked me, well, why did they do that? I don't know that I could have given you an answer. If they said, why Hosanna? I may have said, well, why hallelujah? It's a similar word, right? I'm not sure I could have told you the meaning of Palm Sunday. And here's what I've come to realize since then. There is a darker side of Palm Sunday that we don't often talk about. I'm not sure that we're aware of it when we're waving the branches in the air. And here's what it is. Palm Sunday is all about power. It's all about power. The bottom line of Palm Sunday, the bottom line of the triumphal entry, the passage in Mark that was read to you earlier, is this. It's that Jesus is king. He is king. And so Palm Sunday is all about power, but here's the problem. We don't really like kings, do we? We don't like kings, not here in America. On the other side, you know, in Europe, we'll give them their old dusty monarchies, but not on this side of the pond. We don't need a king. We don't want a king. We don't like kings here in America, right? Or do we? When someone comes along and promises to save us, when someone comes along and promises to give us power, we tend to get a little more interested, right? And we line up behind them. So what does it mean when we say that Jesus is the king? Well, that's what we're going to find out today. And what we're going to see in this passage is that Jesus is not always the king that we want, but he's the king that we need. So let me pray for us again as we get started. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are not silent, but you have spoken. You have not left us alone to find you, but you, you have revealed yourself to us. And we thank you that you have come in the person of Jesus and that you reveal yourself to us in him and in his word. And so, Lord, I pray today that all the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together will be pleasing to you, our Redeemer. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Actions speak louder than words, right? That's what we say. And if that's true, then symbolic actions, symbolic actions that are charged with meaning, must speak even louder. Symbolic actions must scream to us. Think about this. When, when someone writes an op-ed, when someone writes an essay, they want to change your mind, right? They want to have a conversation. But when someone burns a flag... That demands a response, right? Actions speak louder than words, and symbolic actions scream at us. So if you want to change someone's mind, sure, write an essay, but if you want to start a fight, 
If you want to provoke and disrupt, then you use symbolic actions. Symbolic actions are like, like performance art. They provoke us. They disrupt us. It's no surprise that when Jesus made his entry into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, he came into the city known as a prophet, known as a miracle worker. It's fitting that he would use symbolic actions to proclaim his kingdom and his kingship. Now, you may remember throughout the gospel stories, you hear Jesus saying things like, don't tell anyone who I am. Don't tell people that I'm the Messiah. Sometimes they even come to him and they say, we want to make you king. The crowds come around him to make him king. And then he kind of evades and he slips out of their grasp. And he says, no, that's not what I'm going to do today. But on Palm Sunday, he screams loud and clear through his symbolic actions, I am the king. I am king. Crown me or kill me. I am king. He didn't write an essay. He burned a flag. And then within days, we know the story. He was dead and buried, right? So we're going to look at the stories and we're going to look at the symbols because to really understand Palm Sunday, to understand that it's about power, to understand that Jesus is king, we have to understand the story and the symbols. Now, we get the, the impression from the first few verses of this passage. If you remember, Jesus is saying, hey, go into the city, find a, a colt, find this donkey. When someone asks you, what are you doing? Say, the Lord requires this. It's like Jesus is the director. He's feeding the lines to the actors and to the stagehands in the script. He's directing a play. He's orchestrating this entry into Jerusalem. And so you can feel the suspense, right? What's he doing? Why does he need a donkey? We've walked everywhere we've ever gone. Something is happening. We're going to Jerusalem for Passover. Maybe this will be the time that Jesus decides to redeem Israel. Something important is going to happen here. I can feel it in the air. Entrances are important, right? Especially for people in power. This is why the Godfather's travel with an entourage. They want to make themselves known. This is why kings have royal entries. And so when Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem, he's going to make an entrance as well. If, 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 if you have power, if you want to make a claim to power, if you want to be a king, you've got to make it look good. You've got to make it look powerful as well. Now, some scholars believe that when Pilate, the Roman magistrate over this region, came into Jerusalem that same time, that same week, some, some people think maybe it's happening at the same time. I don't know that we can say that, but if you imagine a split screen, if you imagine on one side the entry of Pilate and on one side the entry of Jesus, it's going to look different. See, if when Pilate entered the city, he was likely pulled by a chariot with four war horses. It was a display of his military prowess, his power, the power of Rome. And the power of Rome was in the sword. They had conquered nations and made them, made them their own and built the Roman Empire. And so when Pilate comes into the city, you get all the pomp and circumstance of a military victory. And then on the other side, you see Jesus riding into the city on a donkey. It's a stark difference. Because Pilate's actions, too, were symbolic to show the power. 
And he's saying, you must pay your allegiance to us. So what is Jesus saying when he comes in on a donkey? What are the crowds saying with the palm branches and the hosannas? Years ago, I remember driving into the city of Chicago, the day that I moved to Chicago. I remember driving in, and the city was kind of like shining on the horizon. I'm on the I-95, which if you've ever been to Chicago, you know there's usually a lot of traffic. You get some time to meditate on the city as you are entering it and reflect upon the beauty of the skyline. Well, this day, the day that I moved to Chicago, the traffic on I-95 stopped. And it stopped because this was the last day of the NATO delegation in Chicago. So all of these delegates from all over the world, these powerful people, diplomats and world leaders, had come to Chicago for a summit and they were on their way to the airports to, be, to, to fly away. And you could tell who was in power on that road. That road did not stop for my two-door Honda Civic. That road, that traffic stopped for these motorcades of limousines and black SUVs with tinted windows and probably bulletproof windows driving on the highway. And we stopped and we waited. It was clear who had the power. The roads were not democratic that day. They had the power, they got the roads shut down, and they drove while we waited. Now, a couple of years later, I was driving back into the city of Chicago, having been away for a while, again on the same interstate, driving into the city, seeing the, the, the skyline of the, of the city rise before me, and I saw a, a white flash in my rearview mirror. And it moved into my blind spot. And I thought, what is this? I'm going to wait for it to see what it is. And then as it moved into my line of vision, I saw this man with a white, just really bright white, puffy parka. And I could tell what he was wearing because he was riding a moped on the interstate in rush hour traffic in the city of Chicago. Crazy white flash just sort of zips around my car as I'm in the traffic and just makes his way through. Did not belong on the interstate, completely vulnerable, a sign of weakness among power. And here's my question, which image represents Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey? Is he the motorcade or is he the moped? Is he the sign of power or is he the sign of weakness and vulnerability and meekness? It's a trick question. He's both. He is both the motorcade and the moped. And this is why the crowds there knew something about donkeys that we don't know. For us, a donkey is a pack animal, right? They're good at just putting all the weight on and taking it up into the mountains. But for the crowds, for the ancient Near East, for the culture that Jesus is Speaking to, donkeys were royal animals. They all knew who rode donkeys. Kings rode donkeys. In that culture, if you put yourself on a donkey and rode into Jerusalem, it's, it's not saying I'm on a pack animal. Yes, it is saying that it's humility. And that's the prophecy of Zechariah that they're referring to. It says, yes, here is your king, humble and riding on a donkey. Yes, it's a sign of vulnerability. 
Because when kings rode donkeys, they said, my kingdom is of peace. The war is over and I'm victorious. So I don't need a war horse anymore. I come riding on a humble donkey. And the crowds knew this imagery. And so when Jesus put himself on a donkey, when he stepped into this script and started directing this play, he was saying two things. He was saying, I'm a king, but I'm a humble king. He was saying, yes, I'm going to to show that I am the one in power, but this is the type of kingdom that I have. I lead a kingdom not of bloodshed, not, of, not, not achieved by the sword, but I lead a kingdom of peace. So it was both the motorcade and the moped. Yes, it was a humble action, but it was also a defiant action. Even though he's the humble king, he's still saying, I am king. And here's the problem. There were already kings on the thrones. There was already Herod, the king of Israel. And there was already Pontius Pilate, as we mentioned, the Roman leader. And so when he says, I'm a king, it doesn't matter if you're saying I'm a humble king or not. You're still saying, I am king. And so it's still a defiant action to the ones who occupied those thrones. So in this script... The crowds understood what was happening. And that's why it says that they followed him behind him and they went in front of him singing Hosanna, waving the palm branches. And they understood the symbolism. They understood the prophecy of Zechariah. They understood that Jesus is saying, I am the king and now is the moment that I am here to redeem Israel. Now, we, as I said before, we don't like kings. We don't like authority but I still, I still relate to these crowds. I relate to the disciples because we may not like authority, but power, on the other hand, power is compelling. Because if we, if we can just get our people in power, then our vision of the world will be enacted. Because in the world we live in, it's either dominate or be dominated, so far better to be the ones in power far better to be the ones who can dominate. And this is true whether it be in marriage or friendship or politics or, or office politics or global politics. Power keeps us safe. And when we are afraid, power is even more attractive to us, right? Because if I can just get in power or get my people in power, if I can control the circumstances, then I'll feel more secure. When I'm out of power, I don't know what's going to happen. It's scary, and I'm insecure. Uh, The writer David Foster Wallace said that we are all kings or lords of our own skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of creation. Our will to power, our desire for power, is at least, at least let us have power over our own lives, right? If I can control my own life, then I can bring some safety and some stability and some happiness to it. And so I relate to the crowds who are saying, let's make Jesus the king. You know, we're tired of the Roman oppressor. We're tired of Herod. And they were quick to praise Jesus. Let's make him king. 
Our other kings tax us and they take from us. But this guy, this prophet Jesus, he gives to us. He can make bread out of thin air. He raises the dead. He heals the sick. Let's make him king. He seems better than Herod. He seems better than Pontius Pilate. And we're his followers. So if he can come to power, then maybe we can come to power. Maybe we can overturn the powers that be, and we can be great in his kingdom. And so the crowds respond. The crowds say, yes, let's sing Hosanna. Let's cut the palm branches and make way. Let's throw our cloaks on the ground in front of him. Let's make way for this new king. Because like us, they wanted the power. They wanted the stability. They wanted the security. They were drawn to this guy, Jesus, because they wanted Israel to be vindicated. They wanted him to sit on the throne in Jerusalem and rule instead of Herod and instead of Pilate. And they knew the script. So what did they do? They, the psalm that we sang earlier, Psalm 118, um, in, in that psalm they said, Save us, we pray. Save us, we pray. And so, so the crowds took palm branches and they said, if this guy will give us freedom, if this guy will liberate us, then let's worship him or let's make him king. Why the palm branches? Well, in that day, palm branches signified victory and peace. It signified that a new king has achieved victory and his reign will be one of peace. In fact, a hundred years later, when you see another revolt that happened in, the, in this region, they actually put palms on the back of their coins, and on the other side it says, year one of the redemption of Israel. So when they're waving palm branches, this isn't like the cartoon king where someone's waving branches and feeding him grapes. No, they're saying, it's time for redemption. This is our king, his kingdom will be a kingdom of peace, and he will have victory. And so they're asking for Jesus to be their king. And if that's not enough, they're using this word Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Bless the king and his kingdom. Hosanna in the highest. And that word Hosanna comes from Psalm 118, which they were likely singing on their way up to celebrate the, fa- the, the feast of Passover. And now they apply it to Jesus. And they say, Hosanna. Now, Hosanna is a Greek word, but it's transliterated from the Hebrew. And in the Hebrew, the word is Hoshiana, save us, we pray. That's why when we read it from Psalm 118, it didn't say Hosanna. It said, save us, we pray. And so when they're saying and shouting and maybe even singing Hosanna, they're saying, yes, you're our king, save us. Save us, king. Hosanna in the highest. And it actually had come to mean not just save us, but there is our salvation, save us, and there it is. There is our salvation. This is it. And so when they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, Hoshiana, they're saying, Jesus, will you be the one to save us? So this whole scene is charged with political symbols of power and authority and kingship. Jesus knew it. The disciples knew it. The crowds knew it. And they're saying, let's make him our king. Let's make him our king power and salvation. That's what they're after. And again, I identify with the crowds. Quick, 
quick to make anything king that promises to save them, right? I know I do this, um, maybe in, in small ways. If you've ever heard me talk about a restaurant or a new recipe or a food that I like, it's like, hey, you've got to try this. I will evangelize that restaurant. This is it. Now, I may not think that restaurant's going to save me, but there's something missing in your life, and this restaurant will fill it. You know, we know that we are broken and dissatisfied, and we will celebrate anything that promises to save us. Have you ever listened to anyone talk about Bitcoin? This is the thing that's going to save me. This is going to make me a millionaire. Invest in it now. Have you ever heard of anybody talking about paleo diet or keto? This is a new diet, a new thing that's going to save you. If you do this, then you will lose weight or CrossFit or a new relationship. We are quick, whether late adopters or early adopters, we are quick to celebrate the thing that we think will save us the thing that we think might fill us, that might bring something into our lives to put the pieces back together. And so underneath these small things, there are hosannas. Underneath every search for something to fill us, there's a, there's a whisper of a hosanna. Hosanna. Hoshiana. Save me. I pray. When we think, you know, whatever it is that will cure our loneliness or calm our anxieties, anything that will make us look or feel better, underneath all of that is that whisper, save me. Now, we might not actually say that giving up carbs will save our souls, but we might believe that if I were just 15 pounds lighter, then maybe my body would bring me attention and love that I crave, and community. You know, underneath that is that whisper, Hosanna, save me, I pray. If you listen, you can hear it behind every click of a purchase on Amazon. You can hear it behind every book we read, every TED Talk we listen to and share, behind every personality diagnostic we take is this whisper, Hosanna, Hoshiana. Save me, I pray. Is this it? Is this the thing that will bring me salvation? Behind every new relationship or career or home or vacation, Hosanna. Hosanna, save me, I pray. If only I was understood, if only I was known, if only I had the connection and the intimacy that I crave, if only my spouse and my children would, would change, if only my boss would appreciate me, if only someone would notice me, if only my father would be proud of me, if only, if only, if only, then there would be Hosanna. Then there would be salvation. And behind every whisper, there's a sigh. It wasn't it. It didn't do it. It didn't fill me. Maybe next time. Maybe the next thing. And so in the crowds, yes, there's some defiance, some political action, but underneath all that, there's this desire, will this be the one to save me? Will this be the one that can heal my diseases and give me food 
Will this be the one that can raise the dead? Is this the one who will save us? And Jesus said, I am the king. But he didn't say, I'm the king you want. He didn't say, I'm the king that you're expecting. But he did say, I'm the king that you need. And so what does it mean that Jesus is the king that we need? Now, if we pick back up the story, you can imagine this, as I said, this is suspense, this is a charged moment. There are all of these symbols, this performance art, as they're marching their way through the city. Actually, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, when he tells this story, the crowds are marching into Jerusalem, and they're yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the people in the city say, who is this? What is happening? And the people in the city say, this is the prophet Jesus of Nazareth from Galilee. Something is happening. There's suspense. There's excitement. All of, can, can you picture this? This major city, Jerusalem, the holy city, at the time of Passover, people from all over the world had gathered in this city to celebrate the Passover. And now this king marches in in total defiance of every other king and says, crown me or kill me, I am the king. And the crowds around him are shouting and they're throwing their cloaks on the ground for him to ride over. And they're waving the palm branches and they're singing and they're shouting, Hosanna. What is he going to do? What's next? Is he going to do like the Maccabeans? Is he going to come into the city and go to the temple and cleanse the temple? Is he going to make James and John the high priest? What will Jesus do? What's going to happen next? Well, what does he do in verse 11? He entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. Wait, Psalm 18, where they got the Hosanna from, in that psalm, the king goes into the temple to offer the, the feast, the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Maybe he's going to go into the temple and make this big symbolic action. What's he going to do? He goes into the temple, it says, and when he had looked at everything, it was already late, and he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That's it? That's this grand entrance leading up with all this suspense for him to look at the temple, look at his watch, and go back out to the suburbs. That's what this king is going to do? Wait, Jesus, you're supposed to like take a sword and go to the palace. You're supposed to do something. What are you doing? You just, you just look at your watch and... Realize that it's getting late and you go back out to Bethany? This is not what I wanted. This is not what I threw my cloak on the ground for. This is not what I was waving the palm branches for. At this point in the story, Mark does not give us a climactic rush for the throne or or an attempt to seize power like we may be expecting. Instead, he gives us an ellipsis, a to-be-continued. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Keep reading the story. Now, I don't know why it happened this way, but maybe, maybe he's signaling to us that Jesus is not the king we thought he was. Maybe even in this telling of the story, Mark is saying, hey, you think Jesus is going to do these things, but he's actually here to do something else. You thought maybe he would be a political king to defeat Rome 
and establish Israel's power to vindicate, vindicate the nation of Israel to be year one of the redemption of Israel. But maybe he's actually here to do something else. Maybe he's not the king we thought he was. And for Mark, the answer is no, he's not. But he is the king that you need, that you truly need. He's not here to be Israel's strongman. He's here for something else because he has his eye on a different enemy. He doesn't have his eye on Herod's throne. He doesn't have his eye on the Roman throne. Jesus has his eye on a more powerful, malicious oppressor than Rome or Herod because he had his eye on the enemy that looms behind every oppressor on earth. See, in the triumphal entry, the king that Jesus came to be is the king that dethrones sin and death and the devil. Those are the powers that he came to overthrow. And those are the powers that if they're overthrown, then not only is Israel vindicated, but the whole world can be free. And every oppressor that serves those thrones will be vanquished as well. See, Jesus is fighting an epic battle between good and evil. And that may sound really weird to you in a day and time that we live in, that there is a spiritual war between good and evil that's at play. And when Jesus marched into Jerusalem, he says, I'm going to the top. I'm going to dethrone Satan himself, death and sin. And he says, I'm going to do it not by the sword, but I'm going to do it by giving my own blood. In fact, later on, as, as we follow the story through Holy Week, maybe you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Simon Peter pulls out a sword and cuts off the ear of a soldier, Jesus says, no, put it away. And he heals. He says, my kingdom is not going to come through the sword and through bloodshed, but it, it, it will come by my own blood which will be shed to secure my kingdom. In fact, the same passage in Zechariah that the crowds were singing from, the same passage that said that the king would come in riding on a donkey, in that same passage it goes on to say, it says, my, the blood of my covenant will be with you. I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. See, Jesus says, I'm here not to be the king of Israel. I am here to set the prisoners free. I am here to set those who are bound and oppressed by sin, death, and the devil. I'm here to set them free. Now, we may not like kings. We may not like authorities. But there is one time when you desperately need a king. And that's when you were captive. When you were kidnapped. When you were enslaved to a wicked king. You need a good king to come and set you free. And so when Jesus marched into Jerusalem, he's telling the crowds, I might not be the king that you want, but I'm the king that you truly need because you were captive to sin. You were captive to death and the devil, and I will set you free through my work that I do this week on the cross. And for us, just as we identify with the crowds, we get to put ourselves in this story. And see that we too are captive to sin, death, and the devil. And we too need a king to come 
liberate us. We need to be freed by the blood of Jesus. We need to be set free from the waterless pit. We need the blood of his covenant. And if you remember, every time we celebrate communion, on that last night, Jesus says, this is the new covenant. This is my blood which is shed for you. So he came not to shed the blood of Rome, but to shed his own blood, to make a new covenant with us, to set us free from sin, death, and the devil. Now maybe at this time you really can relate to the crowds. Wait, if, if that is true, you think, think of the crowds, right? This, you know, they left home with this anticlimactic moment. We sang hosannas, we cut the branches, and then he left. Maybe you relate to that now. Maybe you're thinking, wait, I became a Christian, and yet I'm, I still sin. I still um, suffer. The only thing certain in life is that I will die. And the world seems to still be full of evil. So what did Jesus do on the cross? What did he do in his resurrection? What is Holy Week all about? Maybe Holy Week is anticlimactic for you. And if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, maybe you're thinking, yeah, I know Christians. And it doesn't seem to be that their life is any better than mine. So maybe you're in the same place as the crowds are on the first Palm Sunday, at home wondering, what was all the fuss about? So maybe Mark's anticlimactic story is designed for us to be put in their shoes and for us to live in that ellipses of looking forward, of looking for the story to be continued, to be fully and finally finished. Maybe, maybe that's what Mark's telling us, is that the way this kingdom comes is not in decisive, visible, seen victories, but in unexpected and often unseen ways. So we have to look not at what can be seen, but also at the unseen. And when we look at what is unseen, that comes through faith. And so maybe for us to be Palm Sunday people means not only that we say Jesus is our king, but also that we live in expectation of another victory. Maybe we are living in expectation of another coming of the king. We live in this in-between time between the cross and the resurrection and the coming of Jesus. And so as Palm Sunday people, we don't just reflect on Holy Week. We look back and we say, we too are waiting for a king. We are waiting for Jesus to come and fully defeat sin, death, and the devil forever. And that's the vision that we have of when he comes again, is that he will not just uh, proclaim victory, but he will actually fully and finally achieve victory over sin, death, and the devil. So, as I, and I'll close with this, an, another march comes to mind for us to, to play this out. And that march was in 1965 when Dr. King led uh, a march from the city of Selma, um, Alabama, to Montgomery to confront the oppressors of racism and bigotry and hate. And just like Jesus, he understood that there was a bigger battle going on. And so when he made his speech um, at, at Montgomery, 
There's a speech that's come to be called, How Long, Not Long. He said, yes, we're fighting here for victory in this battle, but there's a bigger battle going on. There's a bigger battle than Jim Crow and racism. There's a battle called the spiritual battle of evil. And Jesus has achieved victory there, and it will fully and finally be finished when he comes again. And so he ended that speech by saying, how long will we fight for justice? Not long, for Jesus will come again. He says, how long? Not long, because my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And for us, that's the same is true. We have seen the glory of the coming of, of the Lord, and yet we await the coming of the Lord. We await our King Jesus. How long? Not long, because he has come once, and he will come again. And that's what, the, that's what the palm branches and the hosannas are all about. It's saying, come, Lord Jesus. Come, King Jesus, and bring your kingdom fully and finally here. So let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus. We need your kingdom to come. Lord, we need you to fully and finally defeat sin, death, and the devil. Lord, we acknowledge that even though we worship you as king, we still rebel against your throne. And so, Lord, we pray that you bring us repentance. And, Lord, we pray that you bring us hope as we look to your coming to fully and finally defeat our enemies. Lord, give us faith as we do this. In the name of Jesus, amen.